welcome to the School Business Leadership Podcast. Today is the third and final part of our Able Ed Roundtable series, and we are going for it. We are tackling the rather huge and complex topic that is the role of the school business leader. We talk about the day job, how we can self-evaluate to help us move forward, and what it really means to be strategic. Let's dive in. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Cheryl Campbell, Kemi Arugandade, and Helen Birch. Cheryl is CEO and founder of Abled, the Association of Main Business Leaders in Education, who are committed to raising the profile of the SBL profession while specifically amplifying the voices of existing BAME SBLs and encouraging new entrants to the profession to create a more diverse workforce. She's worked in education since 2003 and is currently the School Business Finance and Operations Director at our secondary school in South East London. Kemi is a school business manager in a local authority primary school and has been in post for almost five years. Prior to that, she worked in universities, undertaking roles including senior finance assistant, financial operations manager and deputy head of income. She's also the chief operating officer at Abled, working alongside Cheryl and is passionate about promoting diversity within the profession. Helen is deputy COO at the Priory Learning Trust, having previously held several roles in education, including school administrator, bursar and school business manager. She's a fellow and trustee of the Institute of School Business Leadership and a leader of the Somerset School Business Leaders ISBL Regional Group, as well as a school resource management advisor. Helen is also an advisory panel member of Abled. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of the SBL and how we think it's going to evolve post-COVID. Welcome, everybody. Hey, Laura. Hey. Hi there. So this is a meaty topic to get into, isn't it? Yes, it is. So today we're talking about the role of the SBL. Um, we sat together as a, a team um, at Abled and we sort of looked at the role of the SBL and um, came up with three strands. We talked about the day-to-day um, parts of the role, the reactionary side of it, and also the strategic part. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the day-to-day. And I think one of the things that I came away with when we talked about it, it's clear that the, the role of the SBL covers uh, a range of things. We wear many hats, finance, HR, IT, admin, health and safety, sustainability, DI initiatives, procurement, marketing, income generation. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes mm. on in this role. And the day-to-day activities of the SBL are vast. So we know that many SBLs, or aspiring SBLs, should I say, may feel a, bit, a little bit scared about entering the profession and some coming to the profession and sideways. I know for me, um, I initially entered the profession because I was looking for a role that allowed me to have the school holidays off so I could be with my daughters when they were off school. And I worked in finance at the time in a leadership role at a university. It was a great team that I worked with and I really enjoyed the job. But, you know, being a single mum of young children, three young children, my younger two were in nursery at the time and my eldest was only year three. So the other two were in nursery term time. So I needed something that would allow me to be off when they were off school. So I decided to look for something that would allow me to be able to still do the work that I enjoyed. So do things like leading the team, improving processes, finance, that kind of thing. But that was also closer to home and that allowed me to do most of my work during the same time when the kids were at school. So I entered the profession sideways 
in that I had no prior experience working in school. I didn't have any specific school business management qualifications per se, but what I did have, in my opinion, I thought were really great transferable skills that I could apply mm. to the role of school business leadership. I think that's the same for a lot of people coming into the profession. I, like Kemi, I came into the profession after having my children and I was looking around for something that would fit better with being a parent. I think it is a bit of a myth that actually you can have all this time off and not worry about it because a lot of the time you're still getting involved in the work in the holidays. But that was, again, that was my thing. I wanted to have more downtime, shall I say, in the holidays. So it was the same sort of thing as Kemi, coming in sideways from the local authority and, again, bringing those skills with me. So looking at how can I how can I put together the things that I've picked up as, as a um, deputy head of service, as a school governor, because that gave me some skills as well. How can I bring those into the role and use those to my advantage without ever having worked in a school before? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Cheryl. I think it's important for us to be confident in the skills that we're bringing with us. Um, a number of us will have transferable skills. And if we reflect on where we are and, and look at you know, the skills we've gained along the way, for example, I studied to degree level. It's not, um, even though it's not a business or finance related degree, um, what it does demonstrate is that I'm um, able to work with a dedicated work ethic, you know, starting, mm. enduring, and completing that degree. So many transferable skills, such as my ability to research, to analyze, to document my work in a clear and accessible way and to sort of manage my time effectively and make sure that it's productive. The role that I did previously, I um, um, gave me line managerial experience. So I, I've, I've led finance administration and operations teams. So I was able to gain and develop skills in managing and developing people and also in recruiting people, but also um, to be accountable for a team and, and the performance of that team and the outcomes. In my finance experience, I had always worked in finance both before uni, during uni and after uni. So I was very familiar with a variety of financial processes. I had experience in writing financial reports such as forecasts, outturns, for senior management. And I was used to ensuring financial privacy. I understood the importance of accuracy and how it impacts decision making. But I also knew I wanted to continue in this line of work. So for me, it meant being open to further CPD. And so at my interview for, for my consult, I made sure I mentioned the fact that I was keen to expand my knowledge in uh, school business management in the context of school finance. Um, so I welcomed the opportunity to study the, the DSBN, which is one of the things that they stated in the ad. I came into school business leadership by the sort of moving up from an administrator to a bursar to a business manager, Kemi. But I completely identify with what you're saying there about using your previous skills because, I, you know, I bought skills from, it was still within education, but a completely different sector, I suppose, like IT and also HR um, in, into the admin role. But I don't think I would have listed as many skills as, as you've just done. I think that, that confidence that you've had of working in ed, another sector within education, I, I didn't have as strong as when I started in, in it at all. Um, and I wish I had now. Kemi, what you've been saying there about your previous experience, I know that when we were talking with Cheryl the other day, you were talking about um, rating yourself out of 10 in each area of the ISBL professional standards. 
Yeah, so what I did when I first came in, because I came in sideways, I sort of reflected and thought, right, I've got to now get to a competent level in each of these areas of this role. So for me, I start, I, I rated myself against each of these areas. So I looked at the competency in HR, in health and safety, in IT, all of the different areas. And for me, it's a bit like that thing where they say you eat the frog. So my weakest point for me was health and safety. I, I was terrified that something would go wrong and something would be really, really awful in my school because I didn't understand the health and safety aspect and I didn't know what I should be doing. So that for me was the biggest thing. So I tackled that first and um, got somebody in to spend a whole day with me going through health and safety policies, all the gaps in the things at my school, which to be fair, wasn't much, but I just didn't know whether I was in, in compliance or not. So that was my biggest thing that I had to really look at the different areas and rate myself and, and health and safety came out as my lowest mark. I think I might have given myself one out of 10. Um, and then I worked my way around each one. So that's something I, I do. And I, I do that now. I do that when I'm looking at my objectives and my appraisals. I look at each area of the um, professional standards and see, right, I'll pick that one this year to try and bone up on a bit. So I use that kind of in a self-development type of way. Cheryl, do you think that um, has changed at all during COVID that you you focused on health and safety more or that you focused on finance? Did it expose any areas that you wanted to develop as a result of the COVID experience? Gosh, where do I start? There's always something I want to develop. Um, <laughs> gosh, health and safety, I feel now, because I focused so much on it at the beginning, that's probably the part I feel most confident about. And I quite like it, actually. Um, and also, I'm quite, well, not I'm not unique, but because I work in a PFI school, I don't have as much oversight to some of the things that other business managers may have had to think about during um, periods of the school being less used. So, for example, um, little used outlets and flushing. I, I don't have to think about those things. So although I boned up on them before I came into this school, as a PFI school, we have a, a facilities team. So I don't have to worry about, oh, there's an increased risk of Legionella because we're not using the taps in that part of the school every day. So the health and safety part, I'm okay with. Um, I think for me, I think the thing that stood out for me was the HR aspect. So I have an HR manager and I felt quite relieved that I didn't have to do as much as he has to do. I know that sounds quite bad, but it showed an increased level of um, support for our staff needed in terms of well-being going through COVID just completely changed the face of HR in our school. And we have now introduced sort of wellbeing meetings just to support our staff more than we were doing before. And that's that's new. And there's that thing that people expect HR just to know exactly what to do. But HR are learning just along the way, just as we all are. We've never been through a pandemic before. So it's a new thing to all of us. But HR for me was the bit where I thought, ah, I'm out of my depth here. So luckily for me, I've got an HR manager. Just kind of talking about the day to day and you've all talked about how you kind of came into the role and education generally and I think Shirley said this in a previous podcast you know in education they do things differently there so apart from the knowledge side of things and like you say the core competencies how did you get to grips with the sector and what would you advise other people to do who are coming in and thinking well I know my, my stuff but I don't know how it works in education. I'm a huge advocate of being a school governor if you can find a school, and they're crying out for school governors as well, if you can find a school with a vacancy local to you, I, I would absolutely suggest trying to get on board with that because that, for me, was how I learned my trade. <laughs> because I, you know, <laughs> sitting in those governors' meetings, going through the reports, and I'll be honest, it took a good couple of years of being a governor before the penny finally dropped at what I was supposed to be looking at, but that was before I became a business manager. 
But mm. I think that is is a, a, a wonderful way to understand what's going on within a school and you can go and do school visits and things like that. So I think I think being a school governor is absolutely amazing. That's what did it for me. And also learning all those acronyms. Yes, acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of acronyms in education to get your head around. I put them at the front of my governor's reports for new governors. Oh, that's good. I like that. Maybe we need an acronym crib sheet for all new school business managers. Maybe there's one out there. I don't know. Is there one? What oh, I don't know. That's a good Let's idea. Let's start one. We can start one. I mean, yeah, I just <laughs> casually talked about PFI thinking, yep, everyone knows what I'm talking about. You know, so we do. We do talk in acronyms without even thinking about it. I've just started working with a new school business manager and she said the hardest thing to get my head around is acronyms. She said, and people are even saying to me, I don't know what the acronym means, but I know what it the, the activity related to it is. <laughs> <laughs> so like it's so bad if we don't even understand our own acronyms anymore that's a nightmare isn't it anything else on the day-to-day part of the role i i completely agree with cheryl about um becoming a governor if you can there are there is a website i've gotten the name of it but laura i'll give it to you to put in your podcast notes at the end okay um, but there is a website that you can go on to and register your interest in becoming a school governor and that's how i was able to become a governor at the local school it's, new to me and you just learn so much from being in it um i also think that using our, the networks that are available to us maybe maybe getting a mentor to support you to get in developing yourself sbr twitter um it's so great for asking questions and even conducting polls if you're not sure about certain things it's a mm. good way to reach out to peers who might be going through what you've already experienced in terms of challenges and who are happy to share with how they work through them. I know also the DfE have an alert tool that you can register to and receive emails as and when things are announced. And that's a great way of keeping up to date with funding or legislative changes. So you can entertain what that might mean for your school. Joining local, regional, online SBL networks is also a good thing that you can do to help with the day-to-day. I know the DfE have a Find a School Business Professional Network webpage, and that allows you mm. to sign up for occasional updates about school business initiatives that can help you in your role. But it also has a directory for SPL networks, so you can access peer-to-peer support via networks close to you. And also join Able-Ed. I mean, we're an online network, so you can con- you can connect with us, and uh, we can support you as a member. Um, regardless of where your region is and where you're located. We also offer members mentorship, coaching and bursary support and help with CPD costs. Yeah, I think it's important, especially people coming sideways into the profession, to to just realise that you don't have to be the expert in everything immediately. So that that's the whole point of red rating, how um, your competency in each area is that you look at them in turn and just take your time really gathering your expertise in each area. And the rest of the time you can, as, as Kemi said, you know, use your networks um, to help you along the way. Because no one is comes in as a complete expert. There are so many different areas in the job that it will be difficult to be an expert in all of them. Um, what I do, I use my LinkedIn account and I use that as sort of a live CV. So I've, I document each of my jobs on there and I go back and I can then pick out what the transferable skills are. So where I previously through college and through uni I worked in payroll 
comes in really handy now because I can answer all the payroll queries. And I, I just pick out all those transferable skills. I worked in school admissions and that was all about interpreting legislation because it kept changing all the time. So just really mm-hmm. using using that as a sort of live CV is the way I use it. So I don't have to, um, because mostly I apply for uh, maintained schools, so I never use a CV. I'm always having to fill out those massive application forms when I do apply. So I don't actually have a CV. So LinkedIn is quite a good place to to keep everything together so I can remember what I've done. I love that. We definitely need to do something about application forms, I think. I just think if someone's filled out one of those really long application forms, they must really want the job. (laughs) Yeah, it's the first test, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, great sifting tool. But I I do think that the benefits of the application form is that you can ask the questions you want to ask and rather than the information they want to provide. I think what you were saying, Cheryl, about the networks and what you were saying, Kemi, about the networks was is an example of how the role, you know, we've got the day-to-day role, but also we've got the reactionary part to it. And by going online or networking with others, we can almost litmus test our reaction to something. Have I understood this correctly? What are you doing about this? I've done this. I'm, I'm thinking about doing that. Does that sound right? And there's a massive part of the day-to-day role that ends up becoming reactionary because of things that are thrown at us and all the hats that we have to put on at various times. So, you know, a day-to-day role um, would just be uh, payroll reconciliation, for example. But um, a reactionary bit would be when you realise that someone's not got paid and you have to get a quick transfer, a bank transfer to them so that they've been paid correctly. So that's, you know, how the the roles we talked about, day-to-day reactionary and strategic, sometimes they blend and they merge. And it might be that mm. as a result of realising that you haven't paid someone, you you go back and you review your payroll processes. So that's a strategic element. So I think that there are strong links between well, all, all three parts of the role of the SBL. Um, and I know that when we were in the midst of COVID, we were reacting on a daily basis, hourly basis sometimes, to news and information and changes in guidance. And I also think that as um, an SBL, we became um, the expert in a, in a short amount of time to this new guidance, and we were helping translate it for other members of the leadership team or, or the teachers within our schools, helping them understand what does this mean? How can we move forward with this? What can we do? What can't we do? And I, I think that SBLs, have been instrumental in helping schools cope with with the pandemic. But I also think those skills were there already. The the ability to be decisive and to to work at pace were already there. It's just that the pandemic has just highlighted those behaviours. Yeah, I think the pandemic was the ultimate in-tray exercise, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. We were talking um, in our trust sort of January, February 2020, about doing a test of our critical incident plan. And and then the ultimate one happened. (laughs) It just went on for quite a long period of time. But it was really um, a useful exercise. And I think that's another example of the day-to-day, then the reactionary, then the strategic part of our role and how they merge sometimes or they flow from one to another. Kind of like the improvement cycle, isn't it? Like you say, this day-to-day, something happens, you react, you assess it, you evaluate it, and then you adjust what you're doing and then start again. And it's a continuous learning cycle, isn't it? Yes, I agree. The pandemic has really highlighted how reactionary this role can be. It's also highlighted how 
crucial the SBL role is in a school and how much, you know, goes in to actually making sure that things are operating smoothly, even in the midst of a pandemic. And we quickly became, you know, we already are the go-to people in the school for most of the inquiries, but we quickly became the experts in this area where no one knew much about and everyone was learning as we went. There were also people willing and able to share documents that they'd already drafted. So you you started with something that you could then tailor to your own school or trust. And I that yeah. was so helpful. Yeah. I re- really valued that collaboration that, that was taking place. Yeah, I mean, you know, if there's a document out there that everyone else is is having to use, why reinvent the will when we can all share and help each other along? It just makes life so much easier having things like that. The fact that there are people out there willing to share that um, and that there are you know, websites and shared drives that are available for people to tap into. Do you think you need more energy as an SBL to do the day-to-day role, to react to things or to be strategic? What do you think absorbs more of your energy? Yeah, I do think you need to be quite energetic to do this role, to be honest. I think that in terms of what absorbs my energy most is just, yeah, the constant changes and, and keeping all the plates spinning at once. It does get tricky, but the fact that there, there is help out there makes it that much easier. I think sometimes I just have to remember to be kind to myself and know that um, there's only so much I can do in one given day. And this is where my time management skills and diary management skills and all the other skills that we've learned from maybe previous roles or whilst doing this role really come into play. Um, So it's not so much about working really, really hard, which, yes, we have to do, but it's also about working smarter as well to make sure that we can be as productive as we can be in the time that we've got. Do you find that sometimes after you've had to react to something, your energy levels are dipped? And then the prospect of doing the day-to-day part of the role, you know, especially if it was something that's taxing like bank reconciliation or your payroll reconciliation, do you find that it takes longer to then deal with that day-to-day routine task? Do you know what, actually, yeah, sometimes it just takes a bit longer. If I'm tired, it will take that little bit longer. Um, But this is where I find it so useful to having someone that I can speak to that relates to the role that understands the role and just maybe even having someone to vent to sometimes makes it that much more easy to maybe switch off a little bit but in the experience of speaking to that person um, is able to share I'm able to return to whatever the task is and look at it from a, a different view or take a different approach to it that might just help me get over that little hurdle give me that energy boost that I need I think we all need sometimes when things get a little bit too much. I had an experience like that recently. I I was sending myself into a spin and I just kept thinking, I'm not strategic enough. I'm not doing enough strategic work. I'm not doing enough strategic thinking. And I reached out to someone, again, through my Twitter network, because I don't actually have a mentor, but we just set up a sort of impromptu one-off session both at our desk, both on Teams, which, you know, pre-pandemic, you would never have thought of just jumping on onto a Teams meeting with someone that you've never met before. 
But we just, we talked for about an hour and we talked through what does being strategic mean? Why are you placing so much emphasis on the word? And I came away from that feeling really good about the work that I'm already doing. And I thought, really, I'm just placing too much emphasis on the word and not acknowledging the stuff that already is in my day-to-day role that I am weaving strategy into. So that was really useful, like you say, to have someone to talk to who understands the role and can give you that pep talk or just go through things with you to give you a different point of view and a different way of looking at things. So that that was a really helpful process for me. Do you think that post-COVID, our definitions of day-to-day, reactionary and strategic have shifted? Because I know the, the job before COVID, you know, and what it was during COVID and what we've learned from it and what we're going to carry forward, it means that things have evolved very quickly and in ways that maybe we've not understood yet. But do you think at this point that we are shifting how we talk about those things in our role? Yeah, I I do, Laura. And I think we've also looked at what we do on a day-to-day basis. And if we've coped during the pandemic with not doing it, we're thinking, why are we going to continue to, to do this particular task? Or is there a better way of doing it? And I think, you know, Cheryl's example of having a Teams conversation with a colleague it is a prime example of that, isn't it? That doing something mm. differently that you wouldn't have thought of doing before. And so I, th- I think we have we have moved away from doing some routine tasks that there's no benefit now why we're doing it. And we are also preparing ourselves to react at pace and 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 more effectively to things I think it's almost like this bit of pre-planning has happened if this happens I'm going to do this so we're, we're almost helping ourselves strategically to react better in the future so in, in another example of how the three aspects of the role can get jumbled up and, and merge with each other I think and also like Cheryl said this idea of the word strategic and we have this idea to be strategic, we have to be almost sat down writing a plan or, or something. And actually, we're doing that quite a lot on the job now. Yeah, absolutely. I think Cheryl hit the nail on the head when she said that we um, should just have to actually sometimes put a lot of emphasis on the word strategic, don't we? And yeah. it's when you really think about it, it is, it's about forward planning, which is what we already do in our role. Being a strategically thinking SBL can be described as a person who thinks about the future vision, puts plans in place for the school to get there. You know, there are so many examples that we probably already do without realising that are strategic. In my school, we looked at our recruitment processes and how we can maybe change those and improve those to become more inclusive and, and recruit a more of a diverse workforce. So one of the things we did was we adapt information from our application forms before it was passed to the shortlisting panel. So any information on those applications that would maybe leave you at risk of making decisions that were maybe biased, whether it's unconscious or consciously, we thought if we blacked out that information, people shortlisting can completely focus on the information that matters in terms of is this person suitable for the role. So that was a, an operational thing that we did, but it would have a huge strategic impact for the school and that we would be able to be that one step closer to achieving our aims, which is to be a more inclusive and diverse school and represent the communities that we serve. Um, so I think there are ways that we, without realising, are already being strategic in our roles. And um, 
that we should celebrate things a bit more, not be so hard on ourselves in thinking that maybe we're not being as strategic as we can be, because I think we are already doing that. I think also it's, it's about being um, a trailblazer, really. That That's a strategic bit. If you're you're going to try something different and, and, and give it a shot, I, I think that's that's a sort of strategic element. But I'm, I'm just thinking about our colleagues who feel that they might not be strategic because they're not on the senior leadership team and and how we can help them feel more confident about their strategic thinking. And I think, Cheryl, your example of, of the LinkedIn, um, using that as a basis to gather all your skills. Hopefully, if people aren't on their senior leadership team, they might do a similar thing, a similar exercise of, of gathering when they have done something strategically. So even when they're applying for their next role outside of their current establishment, or maybe when they go to their head teacher to ask for inclusion on the senior leadership team or for a more a pay scale, which is more in keeping with the deputy heads um, or assistant heads within their school, that they've got examples to hand of strategic thinking. Yeah, and I think another way we could use social media strategically, um, an example that I've come across is I'm in a PFI school and they are few and far between. And as we know, you're the only business leader in your school, so it's difficult to talk over the things that you need to, to understand with with other people in your school and with the business leaders. So I have joined a, a group on Twitter of business leaders who are in PFI schools. So it's quite a niche group, but there are, at the moment, I think there are about five or six of us. And that's really useful in talking through the nuances between the different schools, because each school does things slightly differently, and also just understanding how it works in principle. And most PFI schools now are coming towards the end of their contracts in the next 10 to 15 years. And it's not something you can start to think about in the last two or three years. It's something we have to start thinking about now in terms of how do we exit what's our exit strategy how do we get the best exit strategy for our school and that's not something you can just talk about with your leadership team and so that group really helps to understand we're at different points in our contracts we've got someone who's in the last 10 years who's who's having to think about things I'm in my last 15 years so I've got a, a much longer time to go but it, it's a useful exercise that you could then like like Helen says you could bring that to your head teacher and say, this is an example of strategic thinking. So it's not always about being on the leadership team. There's things that we're, do- we're all doing that are strategic anyway, because we're always planning ahead. Yeah, it's about being able to show that you can be more strategic by being part of the senior leadership team. It doesn't mean by default that therefore you're not strategic now. Absolutely. I would say that don't wait until you are on the leadership team, show them what they're missing. Don't, don't wait to be invited either have those conversations with people and demonstrate that you you can think strategically. So the other example that, that Helen and I have been quite involved in recently is, is sustainability. So we are both, correct me if I'm wrong, Helen, we're both having to lead on sustainability within our school and trusts. And if that's not strategic, I don't know what is, because that's a lot of forward planning and thinking about, right, how do we get to this particular point? Yes, I agree, Cheryl. And I would say... What's tricky about the sustainability agenda is there's lots of information out there as to why we need to change our behaviour and act in a certain way. But I don't think there's a great deal of information out there yet about what schools and trusts could do that isn't what they've been doing already, i.e. making sure they switch uh, the thermostat off or they turn the lights off, you know, those sorts of basic things. We're now at a point where we need to 
really think differently, think outside the box and and put in place a, a strategy that is more than enough to to help us become carbon neutral because that has to be an aim for for all our schools and all the organizations actually within the UK. When I, I went to the um, the equivalent of the ISBO conference, I went to the American one. It's almost two years ago now since I went there. But there were so many sessions around sustainability. And I thought, wow, they are so much further ahead. And I was sort of in a spin gathering all this information. Say, I can't believe this school is doing that and that district is doing that. And so the information, we, we maybe do have to look outside of our normal areas where we would get the information from. But, you know, I, I made links with school business officials, they call them over there, who ha- who were really far ahead in their agenda of what they wanted to do for the schools in their district. And they had sort of hundreds of schools they were looking after. And they showcased different projects that they've done. And I, I visited um, the Duke Ellington School of Arts. And the way that the school was built, it was built with sustainability in mind, with sort of rainwater systems and all that sort of thing. And it just blew my mind. And I thought, wow. We really have got a long way to go. But as long as we're thinking about it and starting to put plans into place, we're in the right direction. Yeah, action is definitely required um, with sustainability. And I think it's interesting, you work in a PFI school, Cheryl, and the there isn't necessarily the the drive then to switch off the lights because that's all included in your price, I understand. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that for me is one of the biggest things that I'm trying to drive a culture change. So it's not just, well, we don't pay the utility bills, it's included, but why are we leaving the lights on? Why are we not thinking about the impact that has on the environment? You know, so it's, it's that's a, a sort of change in culture that we need to chip away at, that it's not just about the, the pounds and the pence, but it's about the impact on the planet. You know, when thinking about the school business leadership role, we're often concerned with, and quite rightly so, the strategy of the school. And it was, Helen mentioned sustainability. We talked about our confident, having confidence in our skills and abilities to do the job and think strategically and own the fact that we are already being strategic, you know, about strategic with things that will impact our school and improve our school. But we also should be strategic with ourselves and in the way that we approach our work, in the way that we assess our work. And one of the things we can do that is by looking at the ISBL professional standards, um, which is a clear blueprint, essentially, for effective school business leaders. And one of the things I thought was interesting when we spoke as a team was the fact that, uh, I think, Cheryl, was it you that mentioned that you actually rag rate your competencies in each of these areas on the professional standards? And using that rag rating, you form a personal development plan. Is that that the approach that you took when you started your role? Yeah, that's right. I just use it as a tool to to guide me. So I, I look at the different tiers and I, I sort of assess myself to see whether I'm operating um, tier one, two, three or four. And then I formulate a plan of how to just build myself up to that next tier. So that's the way I use it. And I, I use it um, as part of my objectives and my appraisal process. So I use the sentences in there as sort of supporting evidence of how I'm going to move to the next tier. And I think that's such a brilliant way of looking at it. And, you know, you're measuring your abilities against these standards. And by constantly looking at it as part of your appraisal process, um, allows you to sort of keep that focus on the values and ethics of the role. Um, it's a great 
uh, framework for having a discussion with your uh, line manager, whether it be the CEO or the head teacher. And depending on the size of your workforce, you may be able to use those professional standards, for example, to um, guide your team. Um, you may have members in your admin team, for example, that um, may be aspiring school business leaders, or you may be thinking about succession planning. I agree, Kemi. I think that the behaviours that are in the ISBL professional standards are, are really useful to have those discussions with aspiring SBMs. Um, you know, talking about agility, and so you're talking about the pace that's required and the decision making that's required. It it just it it lends itself to having that almost coaching conversation with somebody about are are they a good fit for it? Have they got the behaviours now? Do they recognise that those behaviours they could use them? They or they've um, they're prepared to adapt and change to to maximise those behaviours. So I, I, I've done that with my aspiring SBLs in, in my organisation. And I, I think it's a really useful, handy conversation. And almost as soon as you start having that conversation with people, they it's like a light bulb moment, which is on in their head. And they're like, oh, yeah, when I'm doing this, I'm actually being um, collaborative or I'm being resourceful. And almost it, it seems to sort of open up another area um, to their work and another makes them feel enabled I think and appreciate what they're trying to do and, and the impact that they're having. And I think it's always quite useful just to keep a record of all of those things as well so whatever you do if you're doing a personal development plan you know I have a big A4 folder ring binder that I keep my appraisal stuff in year after year to see how I've developed and I, I was listening to a podcast this morning I think it was with Julie and she was talking about uh, keeping a success journal. I think it's a similar thing. You keep keep a record of all the things that you've achieved so that you can have those conversations. Helen was saying earlier about being able to approach your head teacher to ask for your salary to be in line with assistant head teacher or deputy head teachers. Or if you're not on the leadership team, being able to have that conversation. If you've got this whole raft of, of, of evidence, it's, it starts the conversation from a better place and you're on a better footing. So I think it, it's, it's such a good idea to keep that evidence base folder. And the ISBL professional standards and behaviours can be that framework, can't they? Absolutely. You know, you've not made it up. Look, head teacher, this is, this is what I've done against this professional body framework. It's interesting just listening to you talk. And, you know, on one hand, we've got day-to-day -day reactionary strategic and we're saying on any given day, we can be all three of those things. And then sometimes the framework of the ISBO standards is useful in terms of benchmarking our competencies. Well, I think the ISBO framework can also be used in terms of looking at priorities because we can't operate on a strategic level across every remit all the time. So some of those you might say, oh, I've not worked on that this half term and that's okay. I've just kept that ticking over. I've been quite operational with that. And then other areas you might say, well, no, I've been had to be strategic with that for this reason. So as well, it's about prioritising and tracking your work. I think like you said, Cheryl, in terms of where you're spending your time and why, as well as saying, actually, I'm competent. Because sometimes looking at that framework, it's a case of, well, I have to reach the top. And you might feel I've not reached that yet. So therefore, I'm not being strategic enough, which brings me back full circle to what we were saying is actually we're strategic every day, even if we don't feel like it. I think also there's sometimes other people in your organization are the tier four or the tier three in in a particular area like Cheryl said earlier about her HR manager and I think at that point it's absolutely okay to to not be 
operating at tier three, tier four, because somebody else already is. And we can use the our colleagues strategically to help support us in our work. I think it you you can't be the um, expert in everything, but actually understanding how you can use other people's expertise is is a really mm. key aspect of being a leader. Well, if we look at the behaviours, I mean, the behaviours from the standards, the, the very first one is being a change catalyst. Ooh, and yeah. I think that sits neatly with the role of an SBL, because sometimes you are the one that has to really take that baton and start running with it because you are the one that has to make that change. Yeah. And I think EDI is the prime example. You know, at the moment, there's a lot of work going on in terms of decolonizing the curriculum. But there's a whole another side to it. You know, there's there's the the whole looking at as Kami was talking about recruitment strategies. We're looking at the culture, examining the culture within your school, and saying, you know, what does our culture say to people that want to come and work in this school? Is it somewhere that is welcoming? And I think the important thing about EDI is that people really beat themselves up. I think and saying, right, my whole workforce is very monocultural. And that is just reflective of the area in the UK that you're in. And you can't beat yourself up about that. But you need to look at how welcoming your school is. So, for example, one of the questions we've now put into our recruitment process um, asks the candidate about their views about being anti-racist. We're saying we're on a journey to being an anti-racist school. What does that mean to you? And it really sets the tone for our expectations and what our school culture, what we're expecting of people working in our school and we don't just ask it to, to ethnic minorities, we ask it of everybody because it's it's setting a tone. And I think that's the role of the SBL is really championing that and championing those changes and, and not just leaving it to say, right, it's about the curriculum. We're looking at particular poems, job done. Yeah, I, I really identify with the SBL role being a change catalyst and and challenging, well, just because we've always done it that way. Why, why should we carry on doing it that way? And I think Kemi's example earlier of redacting information on application forms that could be used um, unconsciously or consciously as a bias against a, a candidate is a great example. And I know that's quite a lot of hard work to put in place, especially if you've had lots of applications for a role. But it's a really good example of how a, a small change could actually have a big impact on your organisation. That's right. Yeah, it did. I mean, I was the person doing the redacting and it did take some time. At, at, the, moment we, yeah, at the time, we were recruiting for a class teacher role and there was a lot of interest in that role. So we, we had quite a few applications. And so you can imagine it took quite some time to redact the information that we had agreed in a prior SLT meeting that we would redact. And um, so we had that discussion prior to the recruitment um, process and um, agree that actually, yes, this is the information that we don't think we need to see at this stage before we decide who we want to shortlist. And it allowed us to really focus on the, the nitty-gritty, the, the information that matters in terms of recruiting someone that's suitable for the role and someone that's capable of doing the role um, and, and teaching the children in line with the ethos of the school. And so we looked at so what we were left with after the reductions were the personal statements and the qualification information, information such as the person's name, their ethnicity, their gender, their sexual orientation, um, their religion, all of that stuff was left out. And so it just made it so much more 
easier to focus on the task at hand rather than being for want of a better word distracted by the other pieces of information that didn't really need to be seen at that time. I like this, what we've said about change catalyst, but also the SBL's role of setting the tone and changing and establishing culture. I think that is a pivotal role for SBLs. Yeah, I think sometimes it's left to the SBL to be that voice because we are, I mean, quite often people say, what do you do? And the answer is everything that's not teaching. So we position ourselves Mm -hmm. in an other role, but really it's an encompassing role. And these are the things that naturally fall under our remit. So looking at these HR processes, they are naturally things that fall under our remit, making sure that we're in, in line with the Equalities Act and So making sure that there are things that we're doing, not only unconsciously, but indirectly, because there's a lot of indirect discrimination that could come about, like Kemi says, from looking at those things on the application form, which you may not have thought about before. But, for example, shortlisting people who have been to Russell Group universities, that can have an indirect discrimination effect because Russell Group Mm -hmm. themselves have published information to say that they have fewer minority students coming out of their universities so in effect, if you're shortlisting only those, you're already having a, a detrimental impact. So it's, it, the, the redacting, I think, is, is a brilliant idea. And it's a discussion really within your own schools as to how much information you want to be able to see at a shortlisting process. How much information do you need to be able to see for shortlisting? And these processes appear to be administrative or day-to-day when actually they are strategic. And I think sometimes what we're doing, it might feel like an operational task, but when we look at the reason behind it and where that motivation has come from to change something or to do something differently that is what makes us strategic definitely and then again leading on from that there'll be a whole period of time where we're having to do the analysis so the recruitment's the recruitment season's over everyone's happy with who you've recruited and next comes the part where you do the analysis to see if the what was the impact of the changes you made for this recruitment session Mm. did it have an impact or did you just have the same outcome are we looking at the makeup of the recruitment panels? That, those sorts of things. So, so that's the next step for me is the analysis to see what was the impact of the changes that we made. How were those changes received, Cheryl, within and, and you, Kemi, within your schools? In my school, I think it was it was welcomed. I think we because we had talked about it prior to that, and one of our school priorities were to make sure that we looked at how inclusive our school is being, how diverse it is and where we can make positive changes. And so when we recognised that we would need to recruit for a class teacher position, we talked about it at SLT and discussed that actually this is where we can actually put into practice all the things that we've been discussing in leading in lead up to that. And one of the things that we agreed that we would do is actually, yes, let's redact the information that that we don't need to see at this point. And it was what it formally received because we had talked about it and we had decided and agreed as a school that this is the direction that we wanted to go in. I think that in practice, though, I underestimated how long it would take to redact all the application forms. So next time I'm going to make, I'm going to make sure I set enough time, adequate enough time to be able to do that uh, without any risk of delaying the process. In terms of the shortlisting panel, one of the things that they fed back was that um, was how great it was to be able to read through the applications and and just really get to the crux of the information that they were looking for. I think we we do all have some to some extent some bias based on our lived experiences. Um, so by 
putting in place something that allows us to keep our focus on the task at hand just makes um, it that much more easier and fairer to be able to come to a short list of people that we want to interview. I think my experience, what, what I found the most interesting was the reaction of the candidates being interviewed when they were asked the question. So that's something I really want to analyse is the diff- the variation in the answers and whether those answers varied depending on the makeup of the recruitment panel. I know I'm giving myself a lot of extra work to do, but I find this sort of thing really interesting to see, did it make, did it make a difference? Were they just sort of standard answers? And, and you know, just to see how how that really set the tone. So that's something I really want to get into the analysis of it. But we had anecdotally, we had some some lots of different answers. And we had one candidate who actually sat back and took a couple of minutes and said, in my whole career of teaching, I've been teaching for 20 years and I've never been asked that question. It's an excellent question. And I just think it's interesting to see the reaction of the people who are receiving the question and not just the people on the on the panel as well. Is there anything that we can do prior to um well in in the advert stage that would help our schools give across the the correct message about their um inclusivity i think for us we i mean we've we've made the decision to make a an actual statement so we've made the statement to say we are on a journey to being an anti-racist school so we've set it out there you know it's out there and people see this is what we're about I think there are different approaches that different schools take. And, you know, quite often you see the um, we, encourage, we encourage applications. There's a statement they use. We encourage applications from women and ethnic minorities who are underrepresented within our staff workforce. And you see that quite a lot. And that is something that schools can do. But also, I mean, I, I, I was speaking to a CEO of a trust and he was talking about how they'd done a lot of work in making sure that the website just looked very welcoming and inclusive and that's the first thing if you're going to apply for a job one of the first things you do is have a look at their website to see what what they're really all about and I think there's a fine line though it's not about sort of taking a token person and plastering them on their website so I think there's a, there's a fine line between the two things but just actually showcasing that yes we are an inclusive school and being honest about where you are but where you want to get to. Where can SBL's find information about how to champion inclusivity and put those messages out into the wider community? For me, the first place to start is having conversations with your colleagues and your peers. So finding out what other schools are doing. For me, that's always the place to start is sharing, sharing knowledge. We've also signed up to be part of the Global Equality Collective, which I'm, at the moment I'm trialling the app within my school. And that's that's a quite a useful thing to do benchmarking to see where you are as a school. So to look at your attitudes, your policies, and then offers you some bite-sized online training that you can roll out to, whether it be your, just your leadership or if you want to do your teaching staff or your whole school, depending on the size of your school. I mean, it's one price for the app, no matter how many staff you use it for. So, so that's what I'm mm-hmm. trying at the moment to to just try and move forward. It's about developing that vocabulary, isn't it? That shared discussion and the community of the school and talking about what does it mean to us and how do we want to represent that to other people and how do we, like you say, come across as a welcoming school? Yeah, and I think the most important thing is to be willing and ready to have the conversation. Sometimes those conversations are uncomfortable, but just being Mm. ready to approach the topic and have those conversations. And it might just start with conversations within your leadership team, but 
really being being ready for that. And I think that's that's the key thing is the conversation, keeping it within the forefront of your minds. It's not just sort of a passing fad, but really making a commitment to it. It leads back to that. Don't worry about the strategy. It's, it's what you're doing with the culture of your school, isn't it? Definitely. We've covered a lot. We've talked about day to day. We've talked about reactionary. We've talked about strategic. What are the takeaways from this that you want our listeners to go away with? You know, if you could give them some advice of where to focus or where to start, what would it be? So the first thing I would say is don't worry about this word strategy or strategic. It's just a word. And when you look at what you're doing, you're probably already doing it. And it's what you're doing within the culture of the school. So that is your strategy. So don't be too focused on that word. One of the other things I would say is create your own journal, create your success, your it, whether it's a diary or a ring binder full of you know things that you've done. Have your list of things that you've done. And you know you could follow my suggestion of documenting on LinkedIn. So having a live CV that you can always go back to, to say, right, I remember I did that. It was 10 years ago, but you know, it's on there. So really documenting all that information that you can have as a, a place to, to look back on. One thing I'd add to that is also to learn from other SPLs, network and be an active part of the network, um, whether it be online or in person. You know, we're coming out of lockdown now and there are more opportunities to now attend workshops, webinars and things of the like in person. So don't be afraid to, to network and um, to reach out and to ask questions. Being new to the role, it can be quite scary with all the different hats that you have to wear and in, in you know as a school business leader so knowing that there are people out there and there are organizations out there that are willing to share their knowledge and expertise and and um share their best practice it's, it's such a great role and one thing i think we're really good at is just sharing each other and um, sharing our experiences and our knowledge um so get on twitter join um a local regional network have a look at the DFE websites or the list of networks that are near, near to you and um, maybe consider even joining Abled and, and being a member. I would add to that about ragging yourself against the ISBL professional standards and, and look at the behaviours and, and try and understand where you are and where you want to get to, either within your current organisation or, or the next one. So many good suggestions have come out of this episode. I think it's great. But coming back to what Kemi's just said about networking, if people have got questions for you, and we've talked about Twitter a lot, as we always do on this podcast, where can they find you? So I'm on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at Cheryl SBM. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kemi underscore Arrow. That's A-R-O. I can be contacted on Twitter at Deputy COO at TPLT. Thank you so much to everyone for talking about this and for the series of podcasts that we've done. It'd be interesting to see in 12 months' time if we were to have this discussion again, what would have shifted? Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. We'll be happy to return. <laughs> Always good to talk to you, Laura. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation about anything you've heard in today's episode or either of the previous two episodes, you can find all of our contact details in the show notes on my website at www.ljbusinessofeducation.co.uk. Also, make sure you check out the Able Ed website at www.abled.org. That's A-B-B-L-E-D. 
We'd love to hear from you, so do tag us on social media and let us know what you think of the episode. Remember, this show is available in all of the podcast directories. Just make sure you hit the subscribe button in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're listening to this podcast on an Apple device and you like what you've heard, it would be great if you could rate and review the show as it makes it easier for others to find it. You can rate and review the show by clicking on the show in the Apple Podcast app, scrolling to the bottom and either tapping the stars to rate and or selecting write a review. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Thank you.